Hi and welcome to another Fran Science Art podcast in immunology and today I'm going to be talking to you about antibodies. Antibodies are a protein that are made in our body and are there to help the adaptive immune system fight infection and if you want to learn more about how these are made from B cells you can have a look at the B cell immunology uh, podcast. Now most people have come across antibodies at one point or another and you've heard something about antibodies at one point or another Uh, especially in the COVID-19 era where people are looking at antibody titers. I don't know if anybody knows what that actually means. Uh, Antibodies are generally in circulation in your blood and if you have them it's an indication that you have really had a strong adaptive immune system response to uh, an invading pathogen and in this instance it would be COVID-19. Antibodies are made from your B cells. Your B cells differentiate into plasma cells that ultimately make these different types of antibody. There are five classes of antibody, antibody, uh, and they are known as immunoglobulins. Immunoglobulins, uh, the humoral response, all of these things are different ways of saying antibody. The Different classes of antibodies are immunoglobulin A, immunoglobulin E, immunoglobulin D, immunoglobulin M, and immunoglobulin G. If I got all of them, so and sort of it would spell Madge if I G M A D G and E. And each of these antibodies has slightly different roles uh, depending on when they're released and where they're released, and different shapes and different sizes as well. I'm first going to start with what antibodies actually do. They're released in the adaptive immune system uh, alongside cytotoxic T cells as part of your adaptive immune response against a pathogen. And just like the cytotoxic T cells, they are very formidable in what they do. But they do not, unlike cytotoxic T cells, kill things directly. Cytotoxic T cells go around and latch onto things and kill things. Antibodies do not do that. They promote the cell death of something. And they're able to do this because of their unique structure, which I'm going to describe now. In a nutshell, most people recognise the... It's actually the immunoglobulin G or immunoglobulin E as well, uh, isotype structure of an antibody, which is a typical Y-shape protein. And... This is simplified, obviously, but you have one area which enables you to bind the pathogen, and this is called the antigen binding site. If you remember, the antigen is the peptide sequence against which the antibody has been raised. So the peptide sequence on the pathogen that it will recognize, that thing that identifies the pathogen as foreign. So you have one element of the antibody which enables you to recognize the foreignness. And you have the other end of the antibody, which essentially binds to a white blood cell or a receptor or something else. So you have these two areas of the antibody, the antigen binding site and the other area. And the other area is called a constant fragment. If we look at the basic structure of an immunoglobulin like IgG1, you can see it's a Y-shaped protein where you have 
the feet of the Y is essentially your constant fragment. And this is sort of heavy chain. Uh, it's called heavy chain uh, end, C-terminal end. The arms of your protein, which are the arms of your Y shape rather, these are sort of the N-terminal end of your protein. These are the antigen binding sites, and these are part of the variable region of your protein, which means that you have a variation every time in the conformation of your peptides within the protein. And then joining the two, you have this sort of hinge region. Don't think that antibodies are sort of little sticks like twiglets. They have the capacity to sort of be quite mobile. So the type of heavy chain, uh, which is sort of the bottom end of the Y, determines the class and also the club subclass of the immunoglobulin. So you have immunoglobulin M, you have immunoglobulin G, you also have different subclasses of immunoglobulin G, immunoglobulin G1, 2, 3 and 4. So immunoglobulin G1 does illustrate the general structure of an antibody. There are four chains, there are two light chains bound to two heavy chains, and they have these interchain disulfide bridges. Um, the N-terminal end is the variable end, and the C-terminal end is the constant end. So let's get back to what it is that actually the antibody does. Now, I needed to tell you um, what the structure of the antibody was, because then it makes it much easier for me to explain what binds to what. The FC fragment, or the constant fragment, binds to your white blood cells, your leukocytes. And the antigen binding fragment binds to the pathogens. So your arms of your Y bind to the microbes, the pathogens, and the feet of your Y-shaped protein, your Y-shaped antibody, bind to your white blood cells. Now, most people think when you're talking about antibodies, what they do is they stick everything together. I mean, I remember when I was at school, and this is, this is kind of a very, very long time ago, but it was pretty much, that was what antibodies did. They agglutinated everything, they stuck everything together. And in doing so, you neutralize your microbes and you neutralize their toxins. If you have uh, microbes surrounded by little antibodies in disabling it from moving, then it doesn't work very well. However, there are other things that antibodies can do in order to promote the removal of a pathogen. And I will go over these in more detail, but... They include the opsonization and phagocytosis of microbes, antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. I do happen to love this one, particularly because it's such a mouthful. And finally, the activation of the complement system. Now, who remembers what opsonization means? Literally, from Latin, it means to make ready to prepare food. And if you wanted to have a more contemporary uh, sort of analogy, you could say opsonization is the equivalent of coating something in salt to make it more palatable. That is exactly what opsonization is. It makes a, path a pathogen more palatable to your phagocytes. So a microbe coming along that is surrounded by antibodies will suddenly be able to be phagocytosed more readily by the phagocyte. How does this happen? By the antigen binding fragments binding to the microbes, so essentially you have lots of the sort of constant fragments sticking out from the microbe now. You've got the little feet of the Y shape sticking out. There are receptors on your phagocyte for that constant fragment. You have FC receptors on your phagocytes. And if they are immunoglobulin G, these will be constant fragments, uh, FC, FCG, these will be receptors 
for the immunoglobulin G. So the immunoglobulin G can now bind to a phagocyte and in the same way that a phagocyte can phagocytose in the sense that it's receptor mediated, you find that upon binding to the constant fragment, the um, phagocyte will now sort of promote phagocytosis and zip up and engulf both the antibody and the microbe all together, which is an enormous mouthful. Now, antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity is a mechanism by which the antibody is behaving as a go-between. Certain cells, like natural killer cells, don't actually have the capacity to directly attack a foreign cell or a cell that identifies as foreign or even a microbe because it just doesn't have that. But what it does have is a capacity to bind to the FC fragment of an antibody. So if an antibody can bind to an infected cell, for example, maybe a cancer cell, the antigen, the tumour antigen on the surface of the, of the tumour of the cancer, the antibody binds to it and it up, up is sticking its little FC fragment, a natural killer cell can bind to the other end of it. And in the same way that the uh, sort of phagocyte works, the natural killer cell binds to it and it will trigger an intracellular mechanism. This time it won't phagocytose, but it will have a killing mechanism which actually is very similar to a cytotoxic T-cell and it will elicit um, different types of killing mechanisms to directly kill the cell uh, which it is attached to with the antibody as a go-between. However, there are other cells that can also interact with the antibodies in the same way. You have macrophages, neutrophils and eosinophils also mediate ADCC, I'll call it. Um, and the eosinophils, for example, can kill certain parasitic worms, uh, known as helminths, uh, using, instead of immunoglobulin G this time, an immunoglobulin E. The end product of antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity depends very much upon the type of cell that's basically binding to the antibody. If it's a natural killer cell, the natural killer cell adopts mechanisms that are very similar to T-cells in killing things. If it's an eosinophil, it behaves in a similar way to a mast cell and degranulates. But no matter what, the cell that has the antibody attached to it ends up lysed or apoptosed or dead. The last but by no means least uh, mechanism of antibodies getting rid of bad things in our body is complement activation. Now I've talked about complement at length in another podcast but essentially, it's the classical activation of the C1Q complement pathway. Um, and what happens is, as a consequence, this protein, this complement protein, which is produced in our liver and sort of naturally sort of degrades, is it's accelerated and catalyzed in the presence of our antibodies. And as a consequence of which, all of the subsequent components, C1, C2, C3, C4, and so on and so on, become produced. And each of these components does different things. You have the C3Bs, for example, which act as opsonic fragments, just like uh, the antibody can do all by itself. The production of complement also acts as an opsonic fragment. So the complement C3B will stick to the microbe 
and promote the phagocytosis of that microbe. The antibody is nowhere to be seen, just the complement itself. So imagine if you have antibodies and complement present, the antibody uh, could act as an opsonic fragment and the complement itself. So phagocytosis is a definite uh, thing that's going to go on, go on with the presence of antibodies. You have C4A and C5A, which behave as anaphylatoxins. A for anaphylatoxin. And what that does, an anaphylatoxin, it accentuates and promotes inflammation, which means that it acts as chemotactic, it causes activation of white blood cells, activation of neutrophils, and these become more phagocytic and they become more mobile. And then finally, we have the activation, the membrane attack complex. The MAC complex is formed at the end of our complex. This is C5 to C9, and different uh, components of the complement all align themselves in the wall of our pathogen. If there is a, a wall to be sort of permeated, and the complement will sort of essentially puncture a hole in the side of our microbe, causing its lysis. By creating a hole in the side of the microbe, or through sort of different differentiations of osmosis, water will go into the microbe itself and therefore cause the cell to swell and swell and swell and swell until it explodes. And there you have lysis. This is a nasty end to a pathogen. So in summary, antibodies do act as adapter molecules for our immune effector systems. By forming immune complexes with the pathogen, they can then activate our classical complement pathway. They can uh, create the phagocytosis of the pathogen itself. And also they can act as go-betweens between things like cells like natural killer cells and uh, eosinophils, which will cause the sensitization and activation and degranulation of that cell. The next question we really need to ask ourselves is that, is there any difference in the behaviours of our different antibody subclasses? Now, I have alluded to that in, in saying that uh, immunoglobulin E and immunoglobulin G will bind to different types of cell when we're talking about uh, antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. So first of all, I'm going to talk about IgG. Whilst IgG is not evolutionarily the first antibody that we ever made, it is the biggest one. It makes up 70 to 75% of our serum pool. And it is incredibly valuable because of its capacity to bind the complement C1Q. And it also can bind to receptors on phagocytic cells. Now, we have lots of immunoglobulins circulating around in our serum and we're sort of worrying why, does, why don't we normally get activation of our white blood cells? Well, free immunoglobulin does not cross-link with our FC receptors, our receptors specifically for the FC fragment of our antibody. If you don't have any cross-linking, there's no activation of our macrophages, no destruction of our bacterium. However, if you get aggregation of our immunoglobulins, our IgG, on a bacterial surface, it allows the FC receptors to cross-link. And if you have cross-linking FC receptors, this will activate our macrophage, leading to phagocytosis and the destruction of bacterium. So you really need the FC receptors to be cross-linked, and that just sort of means bound through a common bacterium. 
So our IgG is the most popular one because it is produced when we have any kind of memory type reactivation uh, of antibodies from our B cells. And it's also the antibody that is found looking at our blood types. So if you have um, blood group A, you will have an anti-B antibody circulating around in your serum. And this is of the IgG phenotype subtype. So it's not going to be looking like an IgM or an IgE. It is going to be an immunoglobulin G subtype. Now, I've mentioned immunoglobulin M a lot. This is the first type or class of antibody which is made in a response. And it's also first made evolutionarily. And it is a pentamer. If immunoglobulin G is a monomer, so one of those little Y-shaped proteins is one unit, and immunoglobulin M is five of those units assembled together. So it forms something that looks like a little flower, a little snowflake, a little ninja star even, where the center of the flower would be all of the FC portions of the monomers and the antigen binding sites essentially are the outside of the petals. IgM makes up 10% of our serum pool and it is incredibly efficient at binding because it is a pentamer. Unlike immunoglobulin G, however, because it has no FC fragment available, it won't be activating complement or promoting phagocytosis, but it will promote agglutination and binding together of our bacterium or our pathogens. Okay, what comes next in the list of, of our antibodies? So we've done immunoglobulin M, we've done immunoglobulin G. Next is immunoglobulin A. Now, this is the antibody of secretions. It's found in tears, sweat in your lungs, and so it avoids digestion. And this one makes up 15 to 20% of the serum pool. And this is a dimer. Um, so again, it doesn't really work by binding to FC receptors on any of your white blood cells. This, bind, this works by binding microorganisms just like immunoglobulin M does, but this time it blocks the entrance of microorganisms from external surfaces of the tissues themselves. So when it is um, secreted in your tears and your sweat, it avoids the, it prevents the uh, entrance of particular pathogens. Um, so it's quite a, an involved process. If you think how big an antibody is, um, it is essentially transported across with a kind of um, chaperone. And this comes in the form of a receptor, a polyimmunoglobulin receptor that binds to the immunoglobulin A on the outside surface of your cell that is kind of allowing you to go into sort of between you and the lumen. So a mucosal epithelial cell, for example, will have the uh, immunoglobulin receptor on the surface, the internal surface, and bind to the immunoglobulin and transport it across and then out into the lumen. So it's secreted out across. And what this means is that if you do have any bad things trying to enter into your body in these places, they are essentially immobilized by the presence of the immunoglobulin A very nifty little trick there. Now we have two antibodies left, antibody subtypes. We have immunoglobulin D and immunoglobulin E. I'm not going to go very much into immunoglobulin D, is that it 
constitutes less than 1% of our immunoglobulin population, and it is essentially the little tiny receptors that you find on B cells, so very, very tiny indeed. Now, immunoglobulin E is a different kettle of fish. Immunoglobulin E is what we associate as the immunoglobulin of allergy. The immunoglobulin E can also bind to parasitic worms um, using their antigen binding fragments, um, not only innocuous antigens that you find associated with allergy. On the other side, the immunoglobulin E FC fragment can bind to mast cells and bind to eosinophils, and upon binding, they will release their contents of their cells. So eosinophils and mast cells will release things such as histamine and other things. Now, the reason behind having an immunoglobulin E response to something like a parasitic worm is that if you do have large parasites, a phagocyte, there is no way on earth a phagocyte is going to be ingesting an entire worm. I mean, some of these worms, if you think of uh, sort of tapeworms even, are can be up to sort of metres and metres long. So there's no way that's going to be ingested by a one cell. However, when the worm is coated with antibody, especially immunoglobulin E, your eosinophils can attack it through their binding to the high affinity FC receptor. And in doing so, you'll have lots of eosinophils attacking and releasing all of their contents. And if you don't think that's going to be very irritating, Imagine what happens when you yourself have an allergic reaction or your skin starts itching because you've touched poison ivy. The worm or helminth worm is really experiencing a similar thing through the presence of histamines and other inflammatory mediators that are being released. So all in all, our antibodies modulate so many different functions of cell behaviour in our body that enable us to get rid of pathogens really, really effective. And big pharma companies have latched onto this. Therapeutic antibodies do exactly the same thing, where they can modulate the biological behaviour or the therapeutic profile of any particular disease. The type of things that therapeutic antibodies can do can be, for example, binding soluble cytokines and growth factors, for example, in rheumatoid arthritis. If you have an antibody against TNF-alpha, which is produced quite a lot when you are having an, a flare, you can essentially remove all of that TNF or a large amount of that TNF and therefore alleviate a lot of the inflammatory symptoms that you're experiencing. You can get rid of certain cells that you don't want. Uh, for example, cancerous cells through antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity, through the complement system. You can induce apoptosis of certain cells that you don't want, targeting those cells. For example, again, we'll use cancer as an example. We can block receptors and we can modulate receptor behaviour and or receptor signalling. So there are all of these things. The antibody can target, we can... Uh, change the antigen binding fragment of the antibody and we maintain the constant fragment of the antibody so that it will still interact with our immune system and therefore have a response in our bodies against a specific target that we create in a lab. So the future is bright for antibody therapy whether it be delivering an antibody to just simply target a receptor or adding a chemical onto an antibody and delivering it into you. There are many, many things that antibodies can actually do from pregnancy test kits to more serious disease management. 
but ultimately it all comes down to a very simple shape of a Y-shaped protein and how that interacts with our own immune system. So that's the end of this little podcast on the mechanism of antibody function. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please join me again for more Fran Science Art podcasts. Thanks for listening.